Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. This passage is one of the accounts of Jesus' transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Well, please pay careful attention, for this is God's word to us. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May He again write this word upon our hearts this morning. We'll also be reciting together from our Heidelberg, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12, which consists of question and answers 31 and 32. So Lord's Day 12, question and answers 31 and 32. I will read the question if you please recite, uh, 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 recite with me the answer. So question 31 asks, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher who fully reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our deliverance. Our only high priest who has delivered us by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the deliverance he has won for us. Question 32 asks, But why are you called a Christian? Because by faith... I'm a member of Christ, and so share in his to confess his name, to present himself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a free conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and he will Christ over all creation for eternity. As you know, our catechism has these three great sections, guilt, grace, gratitude, and we are in this grace section of our catechism, and more particularly, the section on true faith. And so, 
according to the catechism, what is true faith? Knowledge, assent, and trust. Cat. We are called to know certain things, assent to certain things, and believe personally certain things. What are those things that we are to know, assent, and trust in? The Apostles' Creed. And so, again, we are in this, this big section of the Catechism where the Catechism is expositing for us every article of the Apostles' Creed and giving us a reformed interpretation of this Christian creed. So last week we considered the meaning of Jesus' name. Why did God the Father name his son Jesus? Now we're considering why Christ has the title Christ. What's the significance of that? And, and question 31 tells us that this, uh, this is a title, and it's a title that means anointed. So this is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. And in, in the Greek, it means anointed. So Christ is anointed. He's set apart. He is the long-awaited Messiah. As our catechism says, he was ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Spirit. And of course, uh, this happened uh, in eternity. God appointed Christ as mediator of his people uh, before the foundations of the world. But in his ministry, it formally uh, took place in his baptism. Jesus was baptized, God the Father spoke forth, and uh, the Spirit descended like, like a dove. But notice how question 32 addresses what it means to be a Christian. So this Lord's Day asks, well, what does the title Christ mean, and what does it mean when we are referred to as Christians? What offices does the catechism give us to answer particularly question answer 31? Christ has ordained, been ordained and anointed to what offices? Prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. That's what it means for Christ to be Christ. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, office of, of, of priesthood, the prophetic office, and the kingly office. Christ is the fulfillment of those Old Testament offices. That's what this title of Christ refers to. He's the Messiah. But then in question answer 32, we also we read that what it means to be a Christian is that we, by virtue of our union with Christ, share in all three of these offices. We share in Christ's prophetic office. We share in Christ's priestly office. And we share in Christ's kingly office. And so today, what I'd like us to do is just consider Christ's office as prophet, so his prophetic office, and then we'll consider how we, by virtue of our union with Christ, share in that prophetic office. We'll just consider the first of these offices. So Christ is prophet. So Luke chapter 9, we actually looked at this passage about a year ago, I believe, as we've been going through the, the Gospel of Luke. But you'll notice that this passage is rich with, with images. <laughs> Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on top of this mountain. And especially in light of the Old Testament, mountains are symbolic for places where God reveals himself to his people. Think of Moses on Mount Sinai. <laughs> but then on this mountain, Jesus is transfigured. His face, his clothes shine forth in glory. Moses and Elijah are present there, two Old Testament prophets. 
a cloud overshadows them, which again, in light of the Old Testament, is God's presence through his spirit among his people. And then who speaks forth from this cloud? God the Father. God the Father speaks and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Lots of rich imagery here. This passage is the fulfillment of what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. So listen to what Moses says. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is him you shall listen. It is him you shall listen. It is to him, excuse me, you shall listen. So Moses, who is given to us as sort of the, the archetypal prophet of the Old Testament. And Moses says, No, there's a prophet coming after me who's going to be greater than me. And he will demand all of God's people's ears. So Christ is the greater Moses. He is what all of the Old Testament prophets pointed to. Just as Israel was to listen to the prophets of old, Jesus, as the fulfillment of the prophetic office, earns his people's attention. And God confirms this when he says, this is my son, my chosen one. This is him. This is the anointed one, the, the one whom I have ordained to be the chief prophet. And thus, you are to listen to him. So I'd like us to think a little bit more about this office that Jesus is fulfilling. If he is the greater Moses, if he is what the greatest Old Testament prophet pointed to, uh, let's, let's reflect a little bit more about the office and the nature, the nature of this office of prophet. One thing that we see in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is that prophets had a divine calling. The way in which you distinguish a true prophet from a false prophet is whether or not that prophet had stood in the divine counsel of God. Think of Isaiah 6. Isaiah was, is given this vision of, of God in his heavenly throne room. Commissioned uh, to go to a people who will not hear him. Uh, Jeremiah 23 speaks to this uh, uh, this divine calling as well. A true prophet is one who has received a divine commission in God's holy throne room. And we see something of that here, don't we? God's uh, glory cloud is upon this mountain. God's presence through his spirit is, present, is here. And God the Father speaks forth and says, This is my chosen one who is speaking on my behalf. Listen to him. Jesus has a divine calling, a divine commission. We also see that uh, prophets are those who represent God to the people. Priests are those who, re who represent the people to God, while prophets are those who represent God to the people. The prophets represent God to the people. So Moses, God told Moses in Exodus 7 verse 1, he says, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Moses was the one who was to give God's word to Pharaoh. God's representative to Pharaoh. Or listen, uh, John chapter 7, verses 14 through 16. 
Jesus is teaching in the temple and people are amazed at his teaching. And Jesus says, I do not speak on my own authority. What I speak has come from my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is speaking the word of God to, uh, to the people. Or at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, people are amazed after this sermon because he spoke as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So Jesus represented God to the people and spoke God's word to the people. However, what's unique about Jesus is that he, yes, was a messenger, but was also the content of the message. The messenger and the content of the message. He was announcing ultimately himself. He is the word. God made flesh. Hebrews 1 says that in these last days, God has spoken in his son. Christ is both the messenger and the message. And furthermore, he fulfills everything that he commands. He fulfills everything that he commands. We've witnessed this in the Gospel of Luke. Many times, these commands that Jesus gives his disciples, these are things that he himself is doing. He himself is, is the one who bears his cross faithfully. He himself is the one who loves his heavenly father more than his earthly family. He is the one who renounces all for the sake of his father's will. He fulfills the very commands that he gives his people. We also see that prophets are those who confirm their word through miraculous signs and wonders. This, this definitely characterizes our Lord. He confirmed his word through performing many signs and wonders among the people of the first century. So Luke 9, as well as other passages, definitively tell us that Christ is the one. He is the chief prophet. The one who's been ordained by God and anointed by the Holy Spirit uh, to speak the word of God uh, to his people. And thus God's people are to listen. So Christ is, is our chief prophet. But then question 32 says that we share in this prophetic office. And how specifically do we share in this prophetic office? According to question answer 32. Oh. Confessing. Confessing. Exactly. So notice how it begins by saying, by faith I'm a member of Christ. So that's key. By virtue of our union with Christ, we share in these offices. Now there's a, there are many images that Scripture gives us for union with Christ. You think of a vine and, 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 and the branches, a body and its and, or a head and its body. We're vitally connected to Christ, who is our life source. And so we share in his prophetic office. And the way in which we share in his prophetic office is by confessing our faith. So we are not uh, prophets in the way that Christ was a prophet. We don't receive special revelation from God. Rather, we are to respond to Christ's word and wonders that we see in Scripture by confessing our faith. That is to say, we are to, to, to respond to this book of special revelation by confessing our faith. Uh, one thing that we see throughout 
the Gospels is this paradigm of God's people responding to Christ's prophetic ministry, both in word and in deed, by confessing their faith. That's a paradigm we see throughout the Gospels. God's people respond to Christ's prophetic office by confessing their faith. And so, for us, of course, we, Christ is not, God is not promised to, to, to perform these, these miracles in our midst as he did in the first century. Uh, God is no longer giving us special revelation. And so, what are we to respond to? Well, we are called to respond to the book the completed book of special revelation that we've been given in the canon of scripture. And we are to confess in light of that, that book. So I'd briefly like to go through a, a few passages that, that illustrate this paradigm throughout the Gospels where God's people confess in response to Jesus' prophetic ministry, or uh, in word and deed. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 7, this is Jesus uh, entering the city of Nain. And as he comes near to the city of Nain, he comes across a funeral procession that's exiting the city. And a, a son, the only son of a widow, has just died. And he lays his, he looks upon this widow who's grieving, and we are told that he's filled with compassion. And in response, he goes up to this coffin, lays his hand upon the coffin, speaks to the son, and says, young man, arise. And miraculously, the, the young man is brought to life. And the instantaneous response of the crowd is to say, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And the text says, this is how they glorified God. So God, uh, Christ has just performed his, his prophetic office by, uh, by performing a miracle, and the people respond by confessing their faith as a means of worship. A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited his people. They're interpreting what has just taken place using words. Or Luke 11, uh, Jesus uh, casts out a demon from one who is mute. And we read that the people marveled. And then one lady in particular says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts which, at which you nursed. Again, responding to Jesus' prophetic ministry by confessing their faith. Luke 18, a passage we considered last week. Jesus heals this blind beggar on the road to Jericho. And at the end of this passage, we read, And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God, using words, using their mouth. Mark chapter 7. Jesus heals a man who is deaf and has speech impediment. In response, those who were present were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I could list many, many more examples. Throughout the Gospels, we see this paradigm that God's people respond to Jesus' prophetic ministry by confessing their faith. And this confession of faith serves two purposes. It's a means of worship. Remember Luke 7? They glorified God by saying, a great prophet is among us. God has visited his people. So it's a means of worship, but it also is a means of interpreting. They're interpreting what they're witnessing. They're interpreting that Jesus is a great prophet. They're interpreting that this is a manifestation of God among them. 
So these confessions of faith are serving both as a means of worship and as a means of interpreting Jesus' prophetic ministry. Well, as I mentioned, we don't have Jesus among us performing signs and wonders and giving us special revelation in, in bodily form. And so what are we to respond to? If our confession of faith is, is meant to be in response to Jesus and his prophetic ministry, what are we to respond to? already alluded to this. We respond to the book of special revelation that we've been given. Because Christ ultimately speaks through, on every, through every page of scripture. That's what he tells us. He's the message of it all. And so we then are called to respond to this book. We are to confess our faith both as a means of worship and as a means of interpreting this book. And we formally confess our faith. We do this every Sunday. We did this in our first service with a creed. And we informally confess our faith as well. And both are important. And the way in which we informally confess our faith is when we take our written confession and we dialogue about these truths throughout the week. We ask questions about them. We speak about them to those in our circle of influence. We seek to teach them to those around us, to our children and others. That's the informal aspect of confessing our faith. It's not, we're not just called to recite words on Sunday. We're called to grow up into this confession that we've been given. And we see this distinction in Deuteronomy 6, this distinction between formal and informal confession, uh, in, uh, informal, informal uh, confessing of one's faith. So for instance, in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, which we read for our call to worship, this is the ancient Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, which is the first word of this creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was and is the creed that the Jews recite. They, recited this, they recite this morning and evening. They recited it every week in their synagogue worship. Early Christians recited it on the Lord's Day. This is a formal confession of faith. But then just after that, we see this informal confessing of our faith that we're called to do. Because then we read, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Notice that the formal confession is in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. This is recited corporately, uh, corporately in worship. But then the people of Israel were also called to informally confess their faith by, during the week, talking about these things. Teaching them to their children, putting them as frontless uh, before their eyes, and actually owning these truths that they confess with their mouth. Both of these aspects are, are very important. And throughout the history of the church, one thing that we see is that when the church stops confessing her faith, in a formal sense and in an informal sense, they are almost always led into error. So every denomination or church that's fallen into theological liberalism has already stopped confessing her faith. 
before one goes into theological liberalism, they stop confessing their faith formally and informally. And so it's vitally important that we take this call seriously. We share in Christ's prophetic office by confessing his name, confessing our faith. It's a means of worship. It's a means of interpreting scripture. We do this on Sundays, but we are also called to do this throughout the week, in our homes, within our relationships, in our families. Paul speaks of this, the importance of, of confessing our faith in 2 Timothy 1. He tells Timothy, who really stands as, as, as a representative for the post-apostolic church. He's speaking to Timothy, who, who is going to be ministering largely in a time when there are no apostles. The age in which we live in. And this is what he tells Timothy. He says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Now this is the logic of Paul's, Paul's um, um, argument here. He, he's saying to Timothy, Make sure that you guard the good deposit. Now what's the good deposit? The gospel. Guard the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the next question is, well, how do you do that? That's where verse 13 is very helpful. Follow in the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me. Now, this is something like confessing one's faith. He doesn't just tell Timothy, make sure you memorize all of my epistles. No, he's saying, follow the right interpretation of apostolic doctrine the logic of Paul's argument then is guard the gospel by means of confessing your faith and that's what the church has done ever since they did that in the early church when they encountered division and heresy regarding the the person of Christ the trinity and how the members of the Godhead relate to one another, they confess their faith. Yes, as a means of worship, but, yes, as, but also as a means of interpretation. When we confess our faith, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that our interpretation is just that. It's an interpretation. Oftentimes what happens when people who, who, who don't embrace this calling of confessing one's faith and believe we just need to hold fast to Scripture alone, no creed but Christ, no confession but, but the Bible, what happens is we begin to conflate our interpretation of Scripture with Scripture itself. We don't see that distinction. So we think whatever we believe about Scripture, that's just de facto Scripture. But no, that, that's your interpretation, which is open to scrutiny. What happens then is that, that view, which it becomes very close to the Roman Catholic position of the church's uh, interpretation, which is at the same plane as, in terms of authority, as Scripture itself. So when we confess our faith, we're saying that our confession is an interpretation. It's open to scrutiny. That's why we are called to informally confess our faith and wrestle with these things personally and, and with other people and be good Bereans. And this is both as a means of worship and as a way to guard, uh, the, guard the gospel, the good deposit that's been entrusted to us. 
So Christ is the true prophet, the chief prophet. He has revealed to us the secret will of God concerning our salvation and redemption. And we are to follow this ancient paradigm, this ancient pattern of sharing in his prophetic office by responding to scriptures, responding to special revelation by confessing our faith. And next week, we, next two weeks, we will uh, continue to look at this Lord's Day. Uh, next week, we're going to look at uh, the next office, uh, Christ's priesthood, and then uh, consider how we share in that priestly office. And then the week after that, we'll consider Christ's kingly office and how we share also in his royal office. So let us pray. Well, Lord, we give uh, thanks for uh, the revelation that we have uh, in your holy and divine word. We thank you for Christ 